Group Chat is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the Ringer Podcast Network. Looking for a better way to bet on your favorite sports online? With FanDuel Sportsbook, there are more ways to bet. If you could dream it, you could probably bet it through FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel offers spreads, parlays, money lines, over-under, props, and in-game bets, all in an easy-to-use app. And there are more ways to fund your account. Unlike other sports books, FanDuel accepts more major payment options and there are more ways to cash out. You can receive your winnings in your bank account in as little as 48 hours through a safe and secure process. Check out FanDuel Sportsbook app today to experience sports betting the way it always should have been. FanDuel, more ways to win. And now time for the disclaimer. 21 and over and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. Basketball is very good. Hello and welcome to Group Chat, the Ringer's weekly NBA group discussion show. I am Justin Verrier and joining me today, it is Jonathan Charks. What's up, man? And it's nice to see all you guys. Also joining us, Rob Mahoney. Hello. And from Pinehurst, the great city town of Pinehurst, uh, he is literally trapped in the closet right now. Uh, It is Tom Haberstro, uh, NBC Sports insider, analyst, senior expert what what do we say tom i don't even know i think it's uh, whatever you want it to be uh, i'm just happy that you invited me on this pod today so i get some respite from the seven grandkids that are running around my parents house right now <laughs> what are we if not just a respite from from grandchildren that is that's really just the motto of the show and just to clarify there tom is literally broadcasting uh, from a closet right now so but it's a very nice closet i have to say Thank you. Thank you. I'm actually, I put some clothes in front of me right here so that it catches a little bit more of the audio. Like I've created a a little studio here. You're basically Kanye. This is how he records too. (laughs) Yes. All right. We're going to talk about Tuesday night's games, uh, Clippers, Mavs, and Nuggets and Jazz. And we're going to get into some off-season talk for teams that have been eliminated, perhaps some teams that uh, are about to be eliminated Uh, But first, it's 8 p.m. Pacific time on Tuesday. Right now, the biggest story in the NBA uh, is players and coaches' reactions to the Jacob Blake shooting. Uh, It's really kind of unavoidable uh, at this point. The Raptors players and Celtics players have talked about uh, potentially boycotting today's game. So uh, by the time you hear this, there probably uh, was a decision on that. A lot of players talked about it yesterday, just in media availability. Fred Van Vliet, uh, Jalen Brown, and some others I saw. Uh, But Doc Rivers was especially poignant uh, last night after the game. He actually waited until after the game to talk about this. uh, And he, like, took his mask off and and delivered a really uh, heartfelt, uh, tearful message uh, just about what's going on in the country. Uh, I believe we have the audio of that. So um, if Steve, our producer, could play that right now. It's just so sad. You know, what stands out to me is um, just just watching the Republican uh, convention and they're spewing this fear, right? Like, all you hear Donald Trump and all of them talking about fear, we're the ones getting killed. We're the ones getting shot. Uh, We're the ones that we're denied to live in certain communities. 
we've been hung, we've been shot, and all you do is keep hearing about fear. It's, it's amazing to me why we keep loving this country and this country does not love us back. So obviously a lot of poignant things said there uh, by Doc. I don't really have much to say in situations like this. Um, you know, clearly what happened to Jacob Blake was inexcusable. Uh, I would just say now is the time to listen specifically to people like Doc. Um, and if you could stomach it, maybe watching the video of what happened to Jacob Blake, uh, just because uh, it's really what's happening in this country is, is unavoidable uh, and inexcusable. And uh, I, I don't think we could uh, turn our heads away from that. And I think that's kind of basically what the gist of, of what a, a lot of guys were saying. They wanted to draw attention to this and they weren't sure if being in the bubble and playing basketball was the appropriate response. So uh, definitely something we're, we're monitoring today. But if, if anyone wants to, to say anything about that, uh, you know, go ahead. Yeah, I, I thought Doc's comments were great. But this is going to be a really interesting moment for NBA advocacy in general, just because the players, you know, they've done their part speaking to racial injustice while they've been in the bubble. They've tried to fight for people like Breonna Taylor. There's just too much here to fix in a press conference. There's too much of that kind of calcified systemic bullshit going on that leads to an unarmed black man being shot seven times in the back by police. And this is really the moment, I think, for the billionaire team governors, for the NBA itself to take a more active role in this part of the conversation, in this part of the action. There's, you know, there's a time to start new diversity initiatives. There's a time to donate to this group or that group. That's all well and good, but there's a lot of power based in the NBA beyond the players. And I think they've, they're showing some frustration in terms of hitting kind of the limit of what their platforms can offer individually. And in terms of being in the bubble, that was supposed to be the whole, the whole point of this was being able to put those players and their voices in the spotlight. But now it's time for, I think, for the NBA itself and for the team governors to do more. This is the time for them to kind of put their stake in the ground. Yeah, Rob, when we talk about Doc Rivers, you remember, of course, the Donald Sterling fiasco a few years ago where he was kind of the face of that transition away from Donald Sterling and still is very much a face of the Clippers. Um, and so he's been in the public eye for, for a long time dealing with um, discrimination and racial injustice. Doc Rivers in 1997 was uh, a victim of an, an arsonist burnt down his house in San Antonio. This was a year after he, uh, he retired with the San Antonio Spurs. And R.C. Buford, uh, who's GM, I guess the president now of the San Antonio Spurs, was a scout for the Spurs at the time and raced over to Doc Rivers' house when Doc Rivers was on the road and tried to grab things out of his house. And the cops came. The house was gone. Uh, the, the, the family pet passed away in the fire. The cops never said it was racially motivated, but I think Doc Rivers and his family believe it was. He is a black man living in an exclusive, you know, predominantly white community in San Antonio at the time. And so this is a man who's been dealing with this sort of thing for decades. So when, when people at home are watching this might not be NBA fans, they have to understand where this emotion is coming from. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a hard check for all of us. I get where the players are coming from about the boycotts. Like what we're doing, it just seems so pointless in comparison. Especially like someone like Maya Moore, like what she's doing, that's real. And it's not just them, it's us too. Like our jobs are to watch basketball and talk about it. And if we're being honest, is that really the most meaningful way to impact change in the world? It's not. So we all have to make our peace with it one way or the other because the world is a crazy place. 
And what we do for a living is really not making a big impact on it, unfortunately. Yeah, Maya Moore, uh, the WNBA legend, uh, pretty much, I think she she took off a season in order to help uh, a man with his fight to, to get out of prison who was, who was wrongly accused. Uh, just really just incredible stuff from her. Clearly uh, a UConn grad as well. So you could always UConn? count on them to do the right thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's interesting because I think the other thing that's coming through here, and obviously this is the most important thing, and like I said at the top, this is completely inexcusable. And if the guys want to boycott, uh, definitely have my support. And uh, definitely the NBA has a, a history of, of protesting and just striking in order to draw attention to things. Uh, Bill Russell, I think, is a prime example of that. So it would be interesting to see um, you know, them carry on that legacy. I don't think this is... Uh, um, so. Honestly, I, I hope that the players do boycott. I think this is a big moment for the NBA, but... You know, I think all of our real hope would be that they wouldn't have to, that, that they would never be put in this position in the first place. And I think that's a lot of what Doc spoke to was that people like him aren't allowed to just be a coach. I think the other thing that you're seeing just kind of on the fringes here is it seems like now that, that a lot of these teams have been there for upwards of weeks, I think it's like 50 days or something, the Nuggets have been there. Uh, you're starting to see like the disconnect from the real world. Uh, I think that's probably what's driving uh, like just like, Guys want to, they've been saying they want to get out there, right? They, they feel like they're in this bubble. They can't really make substantial change because they're not in their communities, et cetera. Uh, and the other example of that we saw last night was Paul George, who finally had a good game for the Clippers, had his breakthrough game. Clippers scored 154 against the Mavs in a win. Uh, I think it was like the third most points ever scored in a playoff game. And George, who was roundly like mocked by a lot of people, including like by me, quite frankly, uh, just in his post-game walk-off interview, hasn't even left the court yet, just pretty much acknowledges that he'd been dealing with anxiety and depression. Uh, and it was it was just like a really emotional and matter-of-fact, just this is what I've been dealing with. Um, so credit to, to Paul George for just being honest there. Um, you know, it, it reminded me of what I, I kind of say sometimes about people as they get older, like in their 20s, like... A, a lot of the things that used to be like jokes and just like foibles turn clinical at a certain point and become a little bit more serious. And I feel like there's a little bit of that happening specifically with the George thing uh, and just the conversation about men mental health in the NBA just going on in the league right now where it's like we're used to just bagging on J.R. Smith and uh, some of these other just like guys that are typically just in, in the meme circles, I guess. But then you realize that there are like serious issues behind here uh, and it's almost like a, a reckoning in and of itself where, uh, you know, it's just like these are people and, and they, they deserve like, you know, respect and, and that there are real issues going on behind some of the struggles, I guess, is what I'd say. I mean, it's not an accident that the NBA itself, and I, I would guess that a lot of professional sports are this way. Players, coaches, executives are obsessed with self-help books with books that kind of give you guidance on how to live your life, on how to find balance, on how to find happiness. Like, they're in locker rooms all across the league. And a lot of the... And that's transitioned into teams hiring their own mental health professionals with players feeling, you know, feeling free like Paul to just speak out a little bit more about finding the kind of help that he needs to deal with those moments. That's, you know, I, I think you could look at what the NBA has done in terms of mental health over the last even five years and be a little cynical about it in terms of, you know in the way that all big corporations pay lip service to certain kinds of initiatives like that. 
But the big difference in DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love and all these guys coming out and talking about this stuff is that you get more moments like this, where this is just a normalized thing. This is a part of life. This is something that Paul George can be a human being, even though he's standing in front of a Zoom screen being broadcast to media all across the country in this very weird environment. He's allowed to be a human being for a minute and not just a meme machine. Yeah, I was talking to an NBA player before the bubble about you know what he's most worried about in the environment, the bubble environment. And what he said was the mental health aspect or the anxiety, not initially, it's a month into it, a month into just living in seclusion and living in your hotel room and not having family and friends around you after a bad game, what happens? That's what the player told me was after a bad game, are you going to be able to just get away, go to your family, go out to dinner, just get away and not have to think and roast um, on, on social media. And that's what Paul George was talking about is his players were imploring him to get off social media. I think I saw that he had turned off commentary or any sort of comments on his Instagram. Um, and I think that's the sign of, a, of someone who is searching for socialization, someone to talk to going to the phone and feeling like that's an outlet when in fact, it's just, it's a, it's as JJ Reddick once put it to me, um, a den of snakes um, on Instagram. And so I think it's a, a collective understanding that, man, real human-human interaction is super helpful <laughs> in these times. Um, and when, for these NBA players, they're human. And I think social media, uh, that the NBA is on social media more than any other sport. And I think that's a that could come back to backfire for some of these superstars who are used to having a supporting a support system around them. And in this bubble, you see Paul George and others really struggling, not a weekend. It's a month in when it starts to really set in. Okay. I think what Tom said is a great point. And like, I'll be like serious here. Social media is terrible. I tell all my coworkers <laughs> to get off social media. I'll be, I'll be like, I haven't checked my mentions in three years and my mental health is so much better. I'm not even joking. Like it's the worst thing in the world. Social media is driving all of us crazy. Players, bloggers, average people. Get off it. Think about this. Okay. Twitter allows any person in the world to speak to you anonymously. Think about that. So anyone of the 7 billion human beings in the world can just talk to you on your phone anytime they feel like it. Is that going to be a healthy thing for you to deal with that on a daily basis if you're Paul George? If you're but any Jonathan, of us, no. I like hearing from NBA fan 267439689644464. <laughs> He's my favorite. You don't like to got, hear that guy? He's got a lot of good, oh, good takes man. on everything. I got um, an email address. They want to talk to me. Twitter, I'm out. When I first met Sharks, he had a flip phone and he was in LA. I believe you're going to the beach for the first time. This was like a couple of years ago. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I'm from Dallas. I'm not, you know, we don't have beaches here. <laughs> so uh, I, I would, I always say that Sharks is the only one living right. Um, and I, I agree with everything you just said. Uh, but it's funny. So the game right before uh, George has this breakout game, uh, he has this quote, uh, which uh, he told to reporters, uh, to be honest, in hindsight, if I shoot the ball better, this series would be a lot different. Is it, is it that simple, this series, Rob? Uh, because it seemed like everything was significantly different. Obviously, Kristaps Porzingis didn't play, and we can get into that a little bit, but when both Kawhi and George are going which the Clippers didn't have a lot of this season just because of injuries and, and absences and whatnot, it does feel like they are as dominant as we always wanted them to be. 
Well, it's not even just those two guys, too. You know, this game in particular, you know, Kawhi, all series, has just been kind of methodically getting whatever he wants. And that's with, you know, Dorian Finney-Smith, Maxi Kleba. They've done the best that they can in those matchups. I think they've played pretty good defense. It just doesn't really matter. Kawhi is that strong. He can create that much space. He can get his shots. He's going to put up a lot of points. Then you have Paul George going off. Then you have Montrezl Harrell getting back to his game. Then you have so many guys on the roster getting that eight or nine points. And all of a sudden, you know, it's just overwhelming. You know, the Clippers are not the kind of team that's going to have this fluid, pass-heavy offense. It's always going to be a little bit of your turn, my turn. It's going to be a little bit of drive and kick, but not super dynamic. But there's just so many different weapons that they flood you. And then when you look at the fact that Luka's playing on one leg, they don't have Chris Epps Porzingis. They don't have Dwight Powell. Um, I, I don't even know where they're going to go from here. Um, and so we might just point to the Clippers saying, hey, they're just better. They, they hit their shots. But Paul George, he had 27 in game one, too. So, like, it, you know, he, he can do this. Uh, it's the question of whether Dallas has enough weapons to combat a good night from both Kawhi and Paul George. They don't right now. Um, and it, it, that's what sucks about injuries. That's what sucks about going to the bubble and playing in these uh, for, this foreign environment is, you know, they might not have access to the greatest care that they would otherwise. Um, and they've been just ramped up super quickly. And you get guys who are just breaking down. Um, Chris Stapps has always dealt with knee issues over the years, even before he tore his ACL. Um, and so when he's out and and Luca's clearly not uh, 100%, um, it, they're going to be roadkill. Um, no matter how many good nights you get from Seth Curry and Trey Burke, it's just how, how much longer can they go? I do think it points to with the way the Mavs are built. The Mavs have to always be in all cylinders on offense because they really can't guard anyone. And that's the problem, right? Like Kawhi, Paul George, like these are 6'8 guys shooting over 6'2 guys. Like Paul George has Seth Curry on him. He should be dominating. The Mavs have no answer for it. And we saw that last night. Well, and that's where they miss someone like Chris Stapps, too, who is not a shutdown defender. But I think the Clippers are shooting something like 73% at the rim in this series when Chris Stapps isn't in the game. You know, they the Mavs can defend space if they're a little smaller. Maybe they can they can get into you a little bit more. But you just need somebody around the basket, especially with players. You know, the, the Clippers aren't huge in terms of height, but they're strong. And they're going to get up and finish through you if they can get to the rim. Can we just talk about for a second how the fact that the Clippers just dropped 154 points and no one's just like, their minds aren't blown? Like the well, Clippers just dropped 154 points in regulation. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, that's the is NBA Is that the now. big number? It's, it's a huge number. It's the biggest <laughs> of numbers. It's a yeah, number. like, like funny you mentioned that. It, the big number was rebranded this year uh, to the Haberstadt. So we're just trying to get as many uh, terrible puns as possible. <laughs> I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, you know my editing style, which is puns all the time. Yes, v- very punish, very. And the, the, thing, the thing about the NBA right now is 113.6 offensive rating, defensive rating, whatever you want to call it. That's by far the most we've seen in the in the postseason. Um, you can chalk it up to just the first round, just guys aren't playing defense. But 154 points by the Clippers, so many more threes are being taken even compared to the, the regular season. The weird thing, and I guess this could be just a sample size issue, is like the Clippers just, I think they made 22 three-pointers last night. It, it's ridiculous. <laughs> like we just don't even bat an eye anymore. You know what the biggest difference I saw with the Clippers last night was? It was Trez. Like, 
I think that everything they do, clearly they were they were more efficient. They they execute better than we ever seen before. Uh, defensively, I thought it, it, they were better, and it helped that they could just watch Michael Kidd Gilchrist just shoot threes, and and they could just laugh at him from from the uh, the bench area. But that laugh, I, it, it's really really mean. <laughs> but that's the thing; that's their identity. They are kind of the bullies. They're the team that, like, when you were down, they will talk shit about you. When you try to walk to the baseline, they will step on your bad ankle. And as much as I do not support Marcus Morris for what he did, and we can get into that just a little bit, they are the bullies on the block. And you saw with Trez finally in the game, they really embraced that. They definitely played with more of an energy. We talked about last week how the Lakers were upset that they didn't have uh, fans in the arena and it seemed to like throw them off, or at least they said they did. I kind of believe it with the Clippers because Doc said after, uh, I believe it was game four, that loss that they didn't play with energy. And you saw when Trez was being Trez, when he was yelling (laughs) things and just like spittle flying everywhere, they really like played like that. They rallied behind him. Yeah, he's really struggled against Boban in this series. That's been a low-key weapon for the Mavs is like, because it's very rare that Montrezl Harrell loses the backup center matchup in a game. And the fact that he lost it for like three games was a huge part of the Mavs' success. And him, yeah, him having a big game is what they expect when they got last night. We can flip to the other series now just because wait, I think wait, in a lot wait, of... Wait, 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 wait. We're just going to skip over the Marcus Morris, Luka Doncic? Yeah, I don't know. It feels pretty clear what he did. I'm, a, I'm always a little skeptical when people put on Twitter like the video or just the screenshot of what happened because I think a lot of times we just like overblow what is pretty much just like one little snippet of what's happening with free of context. But if you watch it from a, a certain angle, I was like, ooh, there's really no denying it because I thought he just like, it was just after a free throw and they just happened to be in the same vicinity, but he actually walked from wherever he was to where Luca was, specifically stepped on his ankle and... I just don't think that Marcus Morris has any benefit of the doubt anymore. And so it was, it was just really bad. He was a little too quick to grabbing the shoe. Little too oh, quick. So and people are like, oh, he, he helped him off the floor and, and grabbed his shoe. And I'm like, when you're playing in a game, how often does the guy who stepped on the shoe and it falls off actually like go and grab it real quick? Unless in the heat of action, like it almost never happens in the league where the guy who pulls the shoe off is like, Oh, I'm going to go grab this and, and give it back to the player. I, uh, knowing Marcus Morris, he's always had antics in the NBA that like, uh, I think it was earlier this season against Justin Anderson. He like elbowed him in the face mm. and then the went to the like, face. Yeah. Yeah. He, he just booped him. Right. He just boop. And then, and then he got ejected and the the fact that it was his his ankle um that Luca's had an amazing series and it's just the the whole bully nature of the clippers i just it's hard for me to believe and rick carlisle was was smart not to comment on this after the game after he was ejected um it's hard for me to believe that that was not intentional i think that's the way to put it you know we can't all pretend that we're not going through those clips and looking at body language and looking for every movement like we're, I don't think there's like a definitive proclamation you can make in terms of we know for certain that Marcus Morris acted intentionally, but there's all those little things. There's the shoe. There's, you know, it it almost looks like he stretches out his step a little more to make sure he makes contact. Like we can, we can pick apart this stuff. We're never going to get a satisfactory answer again to Tom's point about being quick on it. Marcus Morris also very quick to jump on social media and say, I would never do anything (laughs) like that. How dare you accuse me and my integrity. It's all a little suspect, to say the least. 
he's very quick to just clarify everything on Twitter after he just does some really dumb shit. Like clearly uh, earlier in the season, he had that really stupid comment about uh, calling, saying that someone had female tendencies. And then all of a sudden uh, he realized it's almost like, I don't know if he just gets wrapped up in the heat of the battle, but at this point he just has a long resume of this. There's, there was a clip going around also of him getting tangled with Ben Simmons and all of a sudden just like kneeing him in the head as they were going down. is just, it's not great. Um, Charks, are you, are you a Marcus Morris supporter? Uh, I saw something last night that like he was at a certain point, someone maybe like that was like the Mavs could sign him in the off season, but it pretty much rolls that out at this point. I mean, if we're being honest, I think the Mavs need someone like Marcus Morris. Like you kind of got to have a guy who's going to play on the edge. You need an enforcer. It's like in hockey, right? You have the one guy hitting your player. You have to have a guy who's going to hit him back. So there's like a story in Dallas about, I'm going way back in time. 2003, the Nash Dirk Mavs. They're up 3-0 against Portland in the first round. They lose the next three games. Before game seven, Nick Van Exel gives a speech in the locker room where he says, hey, look, the NBA thinks you're soft. Portland thinks you're soft. Maybe you are, but I'm not soft. Let's go. I think Dallas needs a guy like that, honestly. So what you're saying is that we're going to get the Kobe-Ron Artest situation where Marcus Morris goes and visits Luka in the shower after they lose the series. It's still one of my favorite stories of recent history where it's just like, you couldn't just like sit down at lunch. You just had to like, you really needed to tell him so badly that you wanted to play with him that you had to go in the shower. I don't know. It was just, it was just very strange. Uh, I'm just excited it, for Marcus Morris and his brother, Markeith to be on every NBA team by the end of their careers. <laughs> We're almost there. Yeah. Uh, well, they, they're both in the same general location. So at the very least, they've uh, they found each other yet again. What Also, one of the more bizarre contract situations, didn't they sign so that they had a pool of money and that they yes, split it between them? Which was Phoenix, the Suns... Yeah. yeah, which is the Suns' way of pretty much like circumventing, I think, like paying them what their value was. And then they traded them. Like the next, <laughs> which, the next summer, like one year later, boom, you're out of here. It was, it was which, terrible. I guess for team chemistry wise, as we've seen, maybe not the worst thing, but one of the one of the the dirtiest moves I think, I think in recent history. But uh, clearly, a lot of subplots happening with this series. But uh, the basketball has been way more exhilarating, I think, of of late uh, for the Nuggets and the Jazz. Just another barn burner where everything devolves into Murray versus Donovan Mitchell. Uh, Murray took this one. Uh, pretty much was absent. For a couple quarters, I forgot he was on, even on the court for a while. And then all of a sudden, you can kind of see him working his way back in. And then he just explodes and take over, takes over the game. And he, he couldn't miss at a certain point. There was, there was a point where like uh, he, he dished it to someone. I forgot who it was underneath the basket. Uh, they got blocked by Gobert. It just happened to fall in his hands. And then he just like made a, uh, like a free throw line extended shot just like before the buzzer went off. It was like everything was going right for him. Um, I don't really know what to make of this series. Tom, did last night's game change just your outlook on the series as a whole or just maybe even these two guys and where they are and just like the nebulous of of uh, uh, of stars in this league? Yeah, it's hard. It's amazing what Jamal Murray did on that possession where he split the screen at the top and drove into the paint and then did a spin move in the air again. When Rudy Gobert went up to block his shot, did a spin move to just lay it in. It's just the guy, Jamal Murray is incredible um, with the ball in his hands. Um, he scored 94 straight points without a turnover over the last three games, uh, 15 assists along the way. 
like we're watching two young studs, Donovan Mitchell and, and uh, Jamal Murray just go off. I don't know if the Utah Jazz have another gear where they can just actually play really good defense um, and stop them. But right now it's just going to be, as it is around the NBA, just going to be a shootout. And um, yeah, I, I, I picked the Nuggets to win in seven in this series, but the way that Jamal Murray played last night, if they can keep that up, um, and I don't think Jokic has had a great series. Um, I think that's that's going to go seven. I think this is a pretty substantive change for Murray. And, and this is a guy who, all throughout his career, there's been questions about the consistency. And, and to your point, uh, Justin, I think there are stretches of games where he does phase out a little bit, but it looks to me more like picking his spots than it does drifting out of games. You know, in terms of, def- like, he's not a great defender, maybe not even a good one, but in terms of effort and engagement on that side has been one of the more consistent nuggets all series long. Like he's actually trying to get into stuff. And then over the course of games, you know, the nuggets have always, you know, certainly this season in particular, been a very two man game, heavy offense in the fourth quarters. You know, it's him and Jokic just working over and over and over through that pick and roll stuff. Leading up to that, I see more of that kind of you know, Chris Paul famously does this stuff where, you know, first three quarters are very much get everyone involved. Fourth quarter is I'm going to take over and really engage and really, you know, start manipulating possessions. We really start controlling things. I'm seeing more of that kind of stuff for Murray. And there's the, the poise he has with the ball, the way he's manipulating defenses. I, I think we're seeing a more sophisticated player come out of the ashes of, you know, this guy who's been kind of historically inconsistent. So I, I do think um, part of what's going on here, and we had a talk last week about drop defense. So you've got two guards who can shoot threes off the dribble going against two big men who drop back in the paint and basically are giving them free shots constantly. So the number jumps out to me. Last year in the playoffs, Donovan Mitchell against a switching defense in Houston was in the 14th percentile of pick and roll ball handler scores. This year against a drop defense in Denver, he's in the 91st percentile. Like, I do believe Mitchell's better than he was last year, but I just think the way the NBA is played now, if you don't switch that screen against an elite guard who can shoot threes, you're going to lose. Gobert and Jokic are getting absolutely murdered on this pick and roll. I'm looking at the numbers on it. Gobert and Jokic are getting murdered in the pick and roll. Jokic is 37 out of 40 on guarding that play. Gobert is 33 out of 40. Like, and this is Rudy Gobert. This is probably the best drop defender in the NBA. And there's just not much he can do when this guy is shooting 40-foot pull-ups. So uh, Bomani Jones, the ESPN, has this quote. And he always says, zone is for cowards. And I'm getting to the point now where I'm starting to think drop defense is for cowards. Like, if you play drop against a good guard, I think you're going to lose. To be fair, too, the Nuggets didn't want to play drop in this series. Like, they tried to have Jokic up further to start it. And Mitchell was just getting to the rim. He was just, you know, rolling around Jokic. They were getting so much penetration, so many lobs to go bare. They almost, I think they adjusted because they felt like they had to wall off the rim a little bit. And yet, to your point, then Mitchell just pulls up. Like, I think the command from Mitchell has been really impressive in this series. And we've seen his passing kind of incrementally improve. But he's just picking his spots and really getting, you know, all three levels of scoring as the Nuggets are offering it, getting to whatever he needs for them to be really competitive in these games. Yeah, it's interesting. Even though uh, the Nuggets clearly won last night and Murray had this huge game, even during the loss, it still feels like the Jazz are a team who know who they are and they have this identity. And it seems like they were making a lot of shots early on. So maybe I'm just like, this is recency bias talking, but 
it seems like they have this formula, even with Bogdanovich out, where they have enough offense, Mitchell's taking the reins, and the defense is going to sustain them. I'm still a little unclear of what the Nuggets are, and I feel like a lot of the success they've had has just come with you know, Murray getting hot. All of a sudden, Jokic just drills a bunch of threes to start with, uh, and it gets Gobert moving a little bit, and then he kind of disappears. And I don't know. I, I think this this goes into the, the Michael Porter Jr. conversation really well because... They had success with him on the court last night. They went on that big run with Murray just scoring all those points with him spacing the floor. And clearly he gives them something on offense and clearly gives them something just like a jolt that they just didn't have, especially with all these injuries that they're dealing with. Will Barton out, Gary Harris still out. Um, But on the other end, he is just abominable on defense. He is just like, like, it's so bad that like I can even tell when he is just completely out of position. And there's that one uh, uh, clip where I think Michael Pina sent it out last night where he's just like completely botches a possession and then Michael Malone has his hands in his head. And it's like, that's what it feels like to watch him on defense. And so I don't know. So like on one hand, I feel like they need him. On the other hand, I feel like he's doing perhaps more damage than he's worth. Tom, like where are you on just like him and what he's bringing? The NBA, when you when you talk about a guy who's supposed to have the ball in his hands all the time um, and this, the fulcrum of the offense and then just lays down defensively, um, you have to wonder if he's okay with his role. Um, and you see Jamal Murray ascend uh, to be the predominantly the, the, the ball handler. Um, I think when Jokic, when you look at his game, he hasn't been the same fulcrum of the offense that he usually is. And maybe that has some sort of play on the on the defensive end but like these two guys when you run a dribble handoff with Jokic and, and Jamal Murray it's buckets every time for the same reason that Jarks was talking about is just the the drop defense when you look at Rudy Gobert you want to see him out on the perimeter and I think when you have the two-man game between Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert and Jokic and Jamal Murray we'll see who's going to win that battle um but when but we're when we're in game six here uh, there's been a blowout uh, for for Denver. I would hope that they're going to have a, an amazing Jokic game coming up here because defensively, they just can't stop anybody. To me, this series reminds me actually somewhat of Mavs Clippers. So the Mavs, like the Nuggets, when they're going on offense, you can't stop them no matter what. They're that good on offense. The problem is they don't guard at all. So the Nuggets, so the Jazz and the Clippers can always come back in these games, right? So it's like, the Jazz and the Clippers are always going to play good offense because they're playing a bad defense. Whereas the Nuggets and the Mavs have to play great offense consistently because they're not going to stop anyone. Yeah, the Nuggets are a weird team because I I always look at Michael Malone as just this defensive grinder. And it seems like every time I, I, I listen to him in a press conference, he's always talking about like playing with force and all this other stuff. And I almost feel like it's a weird mix with the personnel that he has, particularly the stars that he has. I feel like Murray and Jokic are probably the weirdest big two in like the best possible ways of these kind of like big twos that are popping out just because Jokic is just this curio and just this like unicorn. Like he's a unicorn amongst the unicorns. Uh, And it's just a weird fit because it seems like they just, they kind of clash in a lot of ways. And it's just like, they never, the defense never feels right. They brought in guys like Millsap and Jeremy Grant and all these other guys to really like legitimize that defense. It didn't really work. And they're kind of in this situation now with Millsap uh, ready for free agency. Uh, Like, I don't know, how do you replace him? Is Grant that guy? It's kind of like, 
a, like owning a luxury car where you buy the car, you're like, oh, this is great. Like, um, I feel good about myself driving a BMW, whatever. But then like you need other luxury parts in order to supplement the luxury car. I feel like Jokic is the luxury car and he needs similarly unique players in order to bring out the best in that team. And I look around, I'm like, maybe Jeremy Grant's that answer. Murray is sometimes, but even he can fade in and out. And But yeah, I, I don't know. I think like even if they win this series going forward, Sharks, I think that they have a bit of a question mark as to like, what is the right mix of guys around Jokic just to bring the best out of him? You brought up the the Ben Simmons idea yesterday and you wrote about it on the site. Is is that like the answer for him? I think the idea of getting a defensive counterpoint for Jokic up front would be really good. But I, I would say even beyond that, fundamentally, if Jokic and Murray are your best two players, I think usually one of your top two players has to be a two-way guy. Like historically over the last 20-ish years, I don't think there's a team where their top two guys, neither one of them can play defense. I think if they're going to be your pairing and they're going to win a championship, it's going to be so much easier if either Murray or Jokic could play really good defense. They remind me somewhat of the Nash Dirk Mavs back in the day where if your top two guys, neither one can play D, you're just compromised. It's just really hard to win four playoff series if that's the case. Right. Uh, Charks, you want to you want to pivot to nerd corner now? You had some some coaching adjustment talk you want to go oh, through. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So one thing I've been thinking about in these first round of the playoffs is just like, I'm curious what y'all's philosophy is on coaching adjustments in terms of when should a coach say, okay, we did all these great things in the regular season. We got to stick with what we do best versus at what point do you say we got to adjust to our opponents? Like I know personally, I'm very much of the school of thought, like you've got to adjust, you've got to be aggressive. Because I just, in my experience, I feel like more series are lost by waiting to adjust too slowly than adjusting too quickly. But I do acknowledge it does happen where, okay, I remember back in the day, the uh, 2007 Mavs, when they won 67 games, they opened that series against the We Believe Warriors and benched their centers. And I think that was probably the right move to make, but making it in game one kind of signaled, we cannot guard them. We've got to change up. Where do you stand on that whole kind of question? Like for Denver, um, when you're dealing with a young team, I'm not, I'm not for that. I think you have to look at the, the roster composition and how old they are and the basketball IQ that you have with your, with your best players. Because I feel like the only way you're going to adjust and be aggressive, like you say, is if you have players that can do that. Um, a lot of players in this league can't make adjustments. A lot of players can't listen to play calls. A lot of players don't respond to instruction very well, especially in the playoff atmosphere. So I think a lot of those decisions about whether to just stick to your guns and go with what got you there um, and making those adjustments, it uh, depends whether you have a Kawhi, a LeBron James, a Luka Doncic, guys who have the basketball IQ where they can make sort of in-game adjustments where the game comes very easy to them. Whereas if you have people who need everything scripted out, you build those habits throughout the entire season and you just throw it out the, out the door, I don't think that's going to go very well. So you really have to, instead of having a hard and fast rule about this, I think you just ha really have to understand the roster composition and whether your star players and your role players are all working on the same, on the same page. Yeah, I don't think you can ever take that piece of it for granted in terms of asking a player to go from the starting lineup to the bench, cutting guys out of the rotation, dramatically change their shot profile. You know, you can change some stuff. And Michael Malone's a great example of this. You know, he's really had his finger in the dam 
throughout the entire series in terms of, okay, we're going to put Jeremy Grant at three. We're going to move these defensive matchups. We're going to try to control everything we can to rectify the fact that our, our team is like a bunch of players who can either score or defend, but not both. And you can do some of that stuff, but at some point, you, you do risk losing guys. And you know there, I agree that there are a lot of series that are lost because coaches don't make adjustments quick enough. The thing is that there's stuff that's bigger than the series, right? Like there's your young guy who you just gave an extension to that you don't want to lose in year one of that extension. There's all these different factors that, you know, there's a certain safety in if we just play our way, maybe this is like the Mike Budenholzer corollary, but you can just chalk that up as like trusting your guys, right? This is how we play. This is how we've won. If you start making changes, you start making changes to that, all of a sudden the phone calls come in from the agents. All of a sudden, this guy is is rumbling a little bit. This guy's starting to get a little grumpy. There's there's a lot that can go down just from the strategy of trying to win a series. All right, we're going to take a break there. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about some teams that have gone fishing already from the playoffs, including one who just ended up in some breaking news. So uh, we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Uh, some breaking news. We were going to talk about the Pacers anyway, but they gave us even more reason to. Uh, so Nate McMillan was fired today, which is odd because just recently his contract was extended, and I believe uh, it was he was given a team option for the season after next in that uh, I'm reading the ESPN news right now, and it was described as a soft extension, which I've heard a lot of NBA jargon, but that's the first time I've heard that one. Uh, Rob, you spent a lot of time around this team. You reported out a big feature for them earlier in the year. Are you surprised by this move at all? I am a bit. There's certainly been that conversation around the league where Nate is concerned, some of which I didn't think was entirely fair. And that gets into kind of the, the circumstances of his dismissal here, which I think is kind of a raw deal. You know, the Pacers are a team where you can very easily identify the things they should have been doing but didn't. Like, it's not hard to shoot more threes than they did because they were right there near the bottom of the league. That said, even though the Pacers have been a first-round exit for a couple years running now, I don't know that they should have won any of those series. In every single one, pretty much, especially over these last couple years, they're without guys. They're without both Sabonis and Jeremy Lamb this year, two really critical parts of their second unit. Victor Oladipo is clearly not himself. You're missing pieces all over the place every season. The team overperforms a little bit in the regular season, and in the playoffs, you know, you have to that there's a reckoning in terms of that kind of performance and what can be exposed in a postseason setting. And so it is tricky in that regard. Do I think another coach could elevate what they have offensively? I think there's some potential for that. But in terms of what Nate's been able to do defensively, culturally, I think that stuff is really valuable. And especially if you're talking about giving a coach a chance to show what this team can do with a fully healthy roster. I'm not sure Indiana really had the opportunity to do that. To me, this is nothing about his performance as, as a coach and it has everything to do with the new candidates that are popping up in the last week. You know, you have Brett Brown, who was fired last week. You have... Mike D'Antoni, who's been out, um, you know, in the in the rumor mill to be let go at the end of the year. You have Alvin Gentry, who is fired. Jim Boylan, who is fired. Um, I think this is more to do about the market for coaches and whether the Pacers feel like there's someone out there that they need to get that maybe previously was not going to be available, but they read the tea leaves or they reached out to their, their agents, their representation, and they feel like Nate... McMillan is not their coach of the future. And 
We'll see. I mean, the details of the contract, the, the extension that they gave Nate McMillan two weeks ago. But to me, uh, it was it was something that like Jim Boylan got from the Chicago Bulls, which was just like, yeah, we kind of like you, but we also don't we, we want to date you. We don't necessarily want to marry you. Um, and so that's what this deal to me was about was Nate McMillan was just like, you know, they, they decided that someone else out there on the on the job market was someone they wanted to target. We should mention that uh, in, in addition to the firing, it immediately comes out that uh, Mike D'Antoni is a target for mm-hmm. the Pacers. Sharks, you actually wrote about that a couple of weeks ago, so credit to you for that. Uh, is he, like Tom is saying, is he the guy who could potentially take this team from what it was, which is a first round out to something even bigger? I think if you were to hire D'Antoni, you would have to restructure your team a little bit. And I think we look at Nate, to me, you have to go back to Oladipo. He's free next summer. And Indiana lost Paul George already. They don't want to do that again. And I mean, I don't think it takes too much reading into it to say if Victor wanted Nate to coach him, he would still be in Indiana. And I think if you're Oladipo, you can say, look, I want to be seen as one of the best guards in the NBA. I'm in an offensive system. I may not necessarily showcase my full abilities, right? I'm sure if I was Oladipo, I would look at what happens in Houston and say, I could do that. He probably couldn't, obviously. But he has the confidence to believe that he could. And to me, it makes a lot of sense in all parties. I think if you were to go after Dan Tony, the idea would be to trade one of your bigs, probably Miles Turner for a wing, play a little smaller, play a little faster. And realistically, are you going to win a championship? Probably not. But you will probably play a slightly more entertaining form of basketball, even if it's not as consistent on both ends of the floor. Well, to Sharks' point too, this is a team that characteristically will not pay the luxury tax. And they just ate a season of salary for their coach. And that wasn't for no reason at all. You know, I think I think that comes in service of the idea that if the front office were really confident in Nate and really confident in those kinds of relationships, then he would still be there. And the fact that he isn't is is certainly telling in that regard, given the financial reality of this particular franchise in the most unstable economic times the NBA has seen pretty much ever. I mean, but do you want to make Victor Oladipo your franchise player? That's a fair question. Do you want to make Victor Oladipo, who has not looked himself and has had one of the most devastating knee injuries you can have, uh, a torn tendon, quad tendon? Um, He's a guy who has lived above the rim for a lot of his career and just finished four games without any dunks. Um, He's a guy who's not getting to the rim. He's clearly limited out there a year or and change from his injury. Are you going to be listening to that guy to make coaching decisions? I, I mean, if I'm the Pacers, I'm making coaching decisions based on who I view, view the long-term roster of this team. And I get a little nervous when they're making any sort of personnel decisions, whether as merit or not, based on uh, Victor Oladipo, when I'm not even sure he's a franchise player when he becomes a franchise, uh, when he becomes a free agent next summer. Right now, I don't feel confident in that. Um, and maybe he gets better, but we just had four months off and he wasn't any better. Uh, so I just get really nervous about p- putting all my chips and betting on Victor Oladipo as the long-term centerpiece of this franchise. But they do have TJ Warren, so the franchise is in good hands. <laughs> no, this, um, this is uncharacteristically bold of the Pacers, as, as Rob mentioned. Um, so, on the one hand, I am 
encouraged by it, that they are seemingly like taking advantage of this window, this team that they basically homebrewed themselves and they found Sabonis and Oladipo when they were distressed assets. Um, they made some good draft picks over the years. Obviously, uh, the TJ Warren signing or, or trade was, was, is well documented at this point, especially at the ringer.com. On the other hand, this strikes me as the same quandary that the Pelicans were in when they let go of Monty Williams, a team, uh, a coach that just brought that team to the playoffs and they went for Alvin Gentry. And you saw that while in spirit going for it, like is exciting. You could see that like it can quickly fall apart if all of the right players aren't in place. And as you mentioned, Tom, just uh, the Pelicans were a team that got injured a lot the following season. If you're building your team around Oladipo, I'm not sure if you can really count on him to be there. I don't know. I, but I will say this, though. If it is D'Antoni who they're going after, he has made a career out of making fringe guys good. And so I do wonder if, uh, even if they didn't have Oladipo, if it was still just the guts of that team that they've been playing with um, earlier in the season, he could still elevate them more to what they, they had already been. I don't know. Okay, I got a question for y'all I'm kind of curious about. What do you think is like Miles Turner's trade value in the NBA these days? You would think that a lot of teams would want him specifically just because every, it seems like there are so many really talented offensive bigs who want to play for Anthony Davis, who knows what Zion Williamson will be. You would think that his like three and D five game would be the perfect complement to a lot of those guys. I think he has quite a bit, especially as a floor stretching big. I think, uh, teams are going to be wanting that um, versus just the model of the Rudy Gobert's of the world. So, or the Clint Capella's. So I think, I think Miles Turner is going to have some trade value. I, I don't think he's going to be on the team next year. Um, I think given the transition that you're having as a head coach and the fact that, um, you know, you have Sabonis and him uh, long-term, I think, I think they're going to make moves this summer. Um, and, and I think it's smart to uh, evaluate whether Sabonis and Turner are the centerpiece, you know, front court of that team. Now, what can they get? I don't know. We'll see what the, the off season is going to look like with draft picks, um, with the, the money crunch around the league, what kind of value you're going to get for him. But, um, you know, the, you mentioned Monty Williams and Alvin Gentry. I do want to take a moment here and mention that Alvin Gentry and, um, Nate McMillan are two of the f- few black coaches we have in the NBA, and they were just both let go in the past week. Um, both were in very difficult circumstances this year with injuries. And you look at the injuries that happened to the Pacers, we're sitting here and they, this guy got an extension two weeks ago. And um, yes, he's been swept twice in the last uh, two postseasons. But man, it seems like the margin for error is a lot thinner for African-American head coaches than they are for, um, for white head coaches. And it just, I hope Nate McMillan gets hired again. I do. And I hope Alvin Gentry gets hired again. Um, uh, JB Bickerstaff was held on in, in Cleveland. Uh, and so Jock Vaughn we'll see in Brooklyn, but this is a league that prides itself on being the most progressive and diverse of, of the other leagues. But right now, uh, there's another head coach who was just let go um, that was already very much in the minority, a black head coach, Nick McMillan. Yeah, and I know other coaches respect Nate a lot. This will be a test to see if other front offices do too and if they really look at what he did in terms of establishing what kind of team Indiana would be over this last you know, half decade or so, really. 
I think he had a significant role in that. And, and this is going to be a big culture check for the Pacers, I think, more broadly, because, you know, we've been talking about Mike D'Antoni and these other potential candidates. This will be the first time, I, you know, basically since Jim O'Brien took over, that the Pacers aren't just promoting an assistant or associate head coach already on the staff, likely. You know, maybe they do go that route, but I don't really see any obvious candidates in that regard to be the next head coach. If they bring someone in, that's the first time that they've done that since the, the 90s, probably, like the, the early 2000s. Like, that's, that's a big change for them. And, you know, there are the roster questions we've been talking about, the, the Sabonis and Turner stuff. There's, you know, how do we juggle all these different interests on the team? How do we maximize the pieces that we have? How do we elevate this and that? There's there's going to be a lot to account for in the culture of the team, I think, just by that kind of dramatic shift. Yeah, and I think sometimes, too, culture can be kind of seen as a little nebulous. Like, we'll be cons- concrete. TJ Warren played defense this year. That was culture. That was Nate McMillan. That is a heck of a feather in your cap right there, getting TJ to commit, buy it on defense, because he was not doing that in Phoenix. And that transition, that's good coaching, plain and simple. Uh, that makes a nice transition to some other players who perhaps aren't committing on defense, uh, the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, so I don't know. Do we want to talk about the Sixers or would you guys prefer that we stick our hands in the blender? Uh, because (laughs) I don't know how many more times I could say the same things about the Sixers, but Sharks and I were talking about this a little the other day. I feel like, and Tom, you should know this, uh, it feels like the Miami Heat, where we talk about them all the time, that people are like, stop talking about the 76ers. But I think people still want to talk about the Sixers because they're so fascinating. They have these two players, generational talents that they can't really figure out. Clearly, Brett Brown is gone here. Well, Tom, actually, let's talk about the Heat. Do you do you see like similarities here between this just like media circus and just like the constant drama with what was going on in Miami? The Miami drama was so different. That was very player-focused and LeBron-focused, and a lot of it was just made up. The Sixers are creating their drama. Like, they've, they, they pushed out Sam Hinkie after, like, three years into the, into the process. Then they bring, in Brian, they bring in Jerry Colangelo, who hires his son and then magically disappears. Jerry, see you, Jerry. Uh, and Brian Colangelo is now running the show. Then the whole... Um, uh, the whole social media scandal happens by the reported by the ringer, by the way, uh, shots, the ringer. Then you got, um, him, Brian Colangelo's out. Then they, they, uh, Joshua Harris says we have the, um, one of the most coveted front office positions in the NBA, the, it, the situation with two young stars in the market of Philadelphia is going to be a sought after coveted um, front office position. And then they promote from within where the guy who had no experience being a GM, Elton Brand is hired as the GM. And he was like playing for the team like two years ago or prior. Right. So, um, then like they remake the roster every month. It seems around Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, you have their own injury issues. Like a lot of these things are self-inflicted drama. The Miami heat, on the other hand, were such a beacon of stability where they were just the same organization, same front office structure, same coach. They said like, like they were within the first week of LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh playing together. There were rumors that Eric Spolster was going to be fired, that LeBron James wanted Eric Spolster out of there. And you know what they did? Pat Riley and Eric Spolstra told LeBron James and the rest of the team, like, this is it. This is the crew. This is how it's going to be. If you have problems with Eric Spolstra, you have problems with me. 
And that's the, that's the speech that Pat Riley and Eric Spolster were able to deliver is this is what an organiza- a championship caliber organization looks like. I don't know what the 76ers are telling their players, right? But it ain't that because everything that they do, they reverse course just like the Indiana Pacers did with Nate, Nate McMillan where it's like, this is our team. This is who we're going to go with going forward. And then they trade for Jimmy Butler and get rid of Rocco and uh, Dario Sarch. And then they go and they trade Landry Shamit and 16 picks and they get um, uh, Tobias Harris. And then, oh, when he doesn't do so well, we're going to double down and give him a max contract. Don't forget about Trey Burke. Yeah, Trey Burke. Let's just like cut bait <laughs> on that uh, halfway through the season, right? So sure. I don't see much similarities with the Sixers and the Heat simply because the Heat have been doing this and winning championships for a long time. The Sixers have just been a turnstile of personnel, both on the court and upstairs. So I, Brett Brown tweeted, I want to thank uh, all the 102 players I played with uh, over my last seven years. You know why he wrote that, 102? It's because it's the most in the NBA over that seven-year period. A, a guy who has coached three playoff teams has 102 players over the last seven years, which is by far the most in the NBA. You don't think that that's a, a, a little shot at the front office on the way I was like, a hundred and two players that came through my system. I mean, I don't feel bad for, um, I don't feel bad for the, the Sixers simply because a lot of this is just self-inflicted and it, it doesn't, it doesn't remind me of the Miami heat who are the opposite. Uh, I feel like in terms of franchise stability. Shouts to Jakar Samson though. Uh, no, but it's funny. The one thing that they, that is consistent has been Brett. So like the heat, they stuck with Brett perhaps longer than they maybe should have. And now they're in a situation where I think the essential question for them is, can a coaching change change everything that they need changed there? Is that going to be the fix they need? Are the two guys that they're building their franchise around, they just need to be utilized differently here and you get some shooters in there and then we're good. Uh, Rob, I do wonder, is there a coach out there that can make sense of this roster or are we, are they fatally flawed? Are we in for this team just blowing up one of these guys getting traded a year or two down the road here? I mean, I think the whole premise of this is the idea that if Brett Brown is not the right coach for this team, you have to at least try right before you start entertaining dramatic ideas of blowing up the team. You're really banking on a Ty Lue to come in and, and make sense of this or, you know, a different kind of coach. And maybe that's the most dramatic difference in terms of this Miami-Philadelphia parallel is accountability, right? Like if, if nothing else, the Pat Riley, Eric Spolster regime is an engine of accountability. And that's been the complaint all along with Brett Brown is that guys like Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid in particular are not being held to account, are not being forced to play the way they should, are not being, you know, that voice for whatever reason like Brett is a good human being and and good at relating to people and good at connecting with guys, but clearly that was not his strong suit in terms of getting those guys to play the way they needed to. So there comes a point at which, regardless, you know, I think Brett's a good coach, but that voice wasn't reaching anybody. You know, it certainly wasn't reaching the most meaningful members of the organization, which are Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. And so sometimes a change for change's sake can be meaningful in that particular way. I mean, it is funny. We're talking about Miami, Philadelphia. There were those quotes from Josh Richardson where he literally just said what Rob said in so many words. <laughs> it's like word for word, culture, accountability. I was somewhere where there was culture and accountability. Now I'm not. We got to change that. Like that was a direct quote from Josh Richardson. who's no better than anybody. Having said that though, it would have been better if Josh Richardson like 
made a couple more shots, you know. Yeah. In- initiated the offense a little bit better if he played like he did in Miami. So, so I don't know. Uh, obviously, the situation is a mess. Um, we're running out of time here. So let's do either the Blazers or the Magic. Tom, as, as, as our guest, do you want to talk about the future of Orlando or Portland? Portland. Let's go. God, it's the wrong answer, Tom. God damn it. <laughs> um, all right, let's talk about Portland. <laughs> Just frees us up to do a whole Magic podcast later, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> I want you to have the ball for, for 60 minutes on the Orlando Magic. We got Kem Birch takes. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but Aaron Gordon, though. So, obviously, Portland had a pretty miraculous run here. Uh, they are barely getting by on the court right now. It seems like everyone just needs a nap. Like, in the middle of the game, they just need to set up the blankets in the locker room or whatever's going on backstage there uh, and take some time off. Uh, they're now without Damian Lillard, at least for this next game on Wednesday, which you'd assume things would end here. So, uh, sorry if they ended up making a miraculous comeback and uh, Wenyan Gabriel just scored 50 points, but we'll just assume. Um, Tom, what's what's the path forward here? Do they have enough as currently constructed? Do they need like one more piece and they're good or do they need something a little bit more significant? Man, um, I think they need a ball mover 3-4 wing. Um, uh, Draymond Green is always thrown out as the guy that they that they need, but they need, I think just someone who's able to relieve some of the pressure off of Damian Lillard defend and pass. Um, because I guess the, the point is, is that Nurk was supposed to be that guy, but he doesn't play any defense right now, whether you can chalk that up to conditioning or being away from the game for a year. Um, he's dealing with a death in the family, but they have provided absolutely no, um, no pressure whatsoever defensively. And Nurk is a really good passer. Um, but I think they need, just need someone on the wing, not a Trevor Ariza. Um, they got Mello, who's as, as dark, you know, as much of a black hole as any player in the league on the wing. Um, so going forward, I do think that they need to be pragmatic about their ceiling in this current format. And I love the backcourt with CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard. But I also love the idea of them trying to swing for a guy who's able to be, um, and, and I don't know if there is a player like Andre Godala in his prime, but someone like that who can defend and move the ball and be the kind of that, that, that wing defender that can also be a point guard in a pinch. Am I crazy for thinking that that might be Kyle Anderson's music? Like, I, 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 <laughs> I was thinking of it in my head, but uh, that'd be a great pickup for them. Like, I love that idea. And, and that's the threshold you're working with, right? You're not going to get a guy that defends and moves the ball and hits threes. Like, you're, you might be able to get two of those things. Mm. And so Anderson's, you know, I already have visions in my head of him being in that, you know, the Mo Harkless spot, essentially, of being able, you know, he has to shoot five corner threes in this playoff game, and it's going to come down to whether he hits one of them or three of them. And, isn't, you know, that... Isn't Kyle Anderson just tall Evan Turner, though? Rude. Very rude. <laughs> How dare you, sir? How I don't know, dare like, you? No, they've just shuffled through so many of these guys who can't shoot to the point where like Harkless was serviceable and they got rid of him just because he couldn't hit an open three. I think the myth of Evan Turner is that he people see that he's a passer and they think that, like Tom was saying, that he's a ball mover. They think that he's somebody who's going to facilitate your offense, but in reality, he needs the ball in his hands. Like That's who he is. He, he's fundamentally kind of a bad point guard. And so, you know, Anderson is, is a different class of player in that regard. You know, not not blowing the doors off of anything, but can at least get you, your offense a little better situated. I think ultimately this goes back to Dame. 
I think Dame wants to be seen as the ultimate winner and the ultimate team guy, loyalty guy. And I feel like at the end of the day, he's going to have to make a decision. Do I trade TJ McCollum, one of my best friends, or do I go for a championship? It, it feels very Lord of the Rings, you know? Like there's <laughs> loyalty on one hand, there's that shiny gold ring on the other. What do you want to do? I mean, like it's his life. Does he want to go for a championship play with his friend? I mean, just call. I don't, I don't know. Isn't going for the ring evil? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, dumping one of your best friends. This, this is Frodo throwing Sam into the volcano at the end, effectively, is what Charles <laughs> is calling for. Yeah, no, it's funny. I think if you had asked me this about a week ago, I would have said they just need probably a bigger wing and they're probably good. Trevor Ariza filled a hole for him. I think they probably would have maybe not beat the Lakers, but given them a little bit more of a run for their money if they had just anybody who could defend wings right now. Uh, I don't think Ariza is the answer going forward because uh, Jackie McMullen did a, a, a story with him where um, she watched the most recent game with Ariza and Ariza was wearing a Kobe Bryant jersey and Ariza is one of the few players who actually played with Kobe Bryant in his prime when Kobe was like winning titles. So I really don't think Ariza is the guy there, but um, they definitely need that. But on the other hand, I'm a little worried about Collins now. This is now what third major injury he sustained. And if they don't hit on their draft picks and specifically their higher draft picks, because they're not going to be picking high up uh, going forward unless the Kings for some reason uh, trade back and give them their pick again. I just, they need those type of players because as good as McCollum and, and Dame are, they're not, AD and LeBron level good where you could just put anyone around them and they're going to make it work. They need those supplementary guys in order to really bring out the best of the entire situation. So I'm a little bit more concerned than I was a little while ago. But at the same time, if everyone's healthy next year, if they make a couple moves on the fringes, uh, get a tall Evan Turner in there, perhaps maybe, maybe they're fine. I don't know. It gets back to the question of what do you want to be? And in this championship or bust culture that we live in, is making the playoffs every year with Damian Lillard, who's an absolute superstar and just one of the most fun players to watch. Um, such a such a big voice in the community. Just everything you want as a leader on your team. Like, do you think that there's some sort of like psychic value of having uh, CJ McCollum and this core together for the for the future? Do you want to blow that up for maybe a shot at a championship? Well. I don't know. These are these are tough questions for an organization to answer. They might value just having a core together and seeing it through. Because even with Zach Collins, like if you wanted to trade him or move on from Zach Collins, what are you going to get? He hasn't played, you know. And and it's going to be one of those things where it's tough to trade uh, a player with who hasn't, you know, doesn't have that much trade stock anymore. So you're kind of stuck with the core that you really wanted to build around when they're not available. Justin, as the premier Carmelo hater, is he back next year? What do you think? So I'm going to zag here. I know I've dragged Carmelo uh, a lot. <laughs> Almost too much, <laughs> I might say. Uh, I think at this point, he has proven that he could be like an eighth guy. If you just need him occasionally to just be like a catch-and-shoot three-point shooter, he's not going to interrupt what you're doing. I think he's fine. Worst case, he's a minimum contract. You just move on from like midseason like the Lakers would have been fine with him as opposed to their other like 30, like 40 year old guys that they have in their bench. Wouldn't, I mean, is mellow better than J.R. Smith right now? Probably. I, I mean, at the very least, like he's a bigger guy. He'll, he'll defend bigger bodies. 
Um, I will note though that Charks uh, found a stat that he had the worst plus minus on the team during the playoffs. Was it just the playoffs? It was for their team. I don't remember the whole playoffs. Right. So it's not what you want to see, but I do think that like he's still serviceable. There, there's a there's a player in there still. I think that's the the concern point there is that Mello was playing like 38 to 40 minutes a game for that team, right? So you have a lot to work with there if you want to, you know, bring, you know, put a Reza slot in him in for some of that, work other wings that you could get in the free agent market or trade market. You know, Gary Trent Jr. hasn't come in this conversation. He has to. That's a piece that gets them a little bit closer to where they want to go, even if you're playing three kind of smaller guards at once. They they have some room to work with there, but that's a, that's a big chunk of playing time that was you know, helpful in certain crunch time situations in terms of him hitting big shots, but also in terms of the plus minus kind of a sandbag. JV, can we get Blake Griffin there? <sighs> That'd be great. Can we, is there is there a wing defender on the Pistons that we can throw in that trade that'll make it? At this point, you just, you'd assume that the Pistons just want to dump the contract, right? Or we're at that point with Blake Griffin. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea. That's a good idea for being, if we're going to go for it. It makes a lot of sense. How many more years does he have left on that deal? Does he have two? A lot. I think we're at the point where the Pistons probably want to move on for him. And if there isn't a lot of long-term money still left on that contract, that's the right sort of gamble a team like Portland should be taking. Now, I'm a little worried that considering their biggest issue this year was injuries and what we just said about Collins. And then I don't know going forward if if Nurkic is going to be bothered by any of the leg injuries he had. He was pretty much out for longer than a year, I think, or, or just about a year. So uh, who knows? But and like Dame and CJ are, aren't getting any younger. Dame is certainly on the other side of 30 at this point. I believe CJ is just about to be. Having said that, I need I need good Blake Griffin minutes to come back. Like he's had too much of a, a of a impactful career in this league to just like wilt away playing next to Bobby Brown and and um and some of the other guys that I can't even think about. On this is Christian Wood erasure. How could you forget about Christian Wood? Man. Oh my God, Christian Wood. Yeah, that's actually the take here. You need to clear space for Christian Wood. Right. Build around the, the face of your franchise needs to be Christian Wood. So Blake has one more year and then a player option the following year, which it's, it's at almost 40 million. So I'm going to go out of my on a limb here and say he's going to take that. Um, real quick here, but before we sign off, uh, Raptors and Celtics... As we've been talking, there's been more talk about uh, the Raptors and Celtics series being boycotted. So we'll see what happens there. But assuming this goes on, uh, the first game is scheduled to be tomorrow. Any quick thoughts, Rob? And then we can go around a little bit just about going into that series and maybe some keys for that. Well, I mean, if the series does start on time and, and go as expected, these two teams have been kind of circling each other all year. It's been one of the matchups I've been most excited to see uh, in terms of the dynamics of it. It changes a little bit with Gordon Hayward's situation, but... I mean, the Raptors are are ferocious. They're fun as hell. This is the kind of team you want to see them tested against. A, a really versatile, good defensive team like the Celtics. I'm I'm really looking forward to the chess match of it. Yeah, I I do wonder about the Hayward piece. I feel like he is a very important player for a series like this. Toronto plays such good defense. It's going to be a freaking war and a grind for Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Kemba Walker. If those guys can score consistently against Toronto, they might win, but it's not going to be easy. Yeah, Kyle Lowry, let's hope he's healthy because um, I think he could give Kemba a fits. Um, Kemba has been coming back from a knee injury and has looked pretty good. Um, they've ramped up his minutes during the the seeding games and he's looked really good. But uh, I would not want to face Kyle Lowry, healthy Kyle Lowry in a playoff series if I'm Kemba Walker trying to make my first deep playoff run of my career. Um, I'll just say that because they're going to throw multiple bodies on multiple defensive coverages. 
And um, that's where Gordon Hayward as a stabilizer could really, really help. Um, so I, th- I think it's going to be an awesome series. And, uh, you know, two, two teams that are full of really good young players um, that, that are ready to prove that they belong. And the Raptors, of course, winning the championship last year, even though they did that, I think they still just have a huge chip on their shoulder about, you know, Kawhi Leonard leaving. And now they're still, I don't think many people are picking them to win at all. Kemba Walker, another UConn legend, is a key to the series, is what you're saying? That's what I'm hearing. Yes, that, that is what I'm saying. And I'm trying to, you know, think of a Wake Forest player here. Um, <laughs> I don't think to they're trying to come back. Ish Smith, where are you at? Ish Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Al Farouk yeah. Aminu. There's a guy, I don't know, uh, Chris Jaylen Paul. Jalen Horde. <laughs> Kemba, man, after watching him in Charlotte here the last few years, it's. Um, it's going to be great to see what, what Kemba can do. And we already know he can win a championship, right, JV? Oh, totally. You, you might even say two had he just, had he just stayed put or <laughs> had they given him any teammate in, in Charlotte who was worth a damn. But uh, yeah, th- it's going to be a fascinating series. I've, I've loved, obviously, watching Kemba kind of come alive again uh, in the first round, although it was against the Sixers. So who knows what he will be going forward. It is a bummer, though. I think the, the through line of what you guys are saying is a lot of this is coming down to absences and injuries. Lowry might be out. Hayward certainly will be out and uh, we'll see what happens from there, but uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm really excited about this series. It's the only second round series actually booked right now. So uh, hopefully we get a couple other ones and keeping the playoffs moving. Um, that's a good place to stop here. Uh, Tom, thank you for joining us, my friend. It's good to see you. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, always good to be with you guys. All right, that's it for us. Uh, Thank you to Tom. Thank you to Rob and Charks. uh, And thank you to Steve and Sasha for producing us. Uh, We will be back next week. Until then, I'll see you later. Basketball is very good. Basketball is very good.